0: He has been a part of the musical Priscilla, Queen of the Desert since its earliest readings in 2005 and has performed that musical's role of Bernadette in his native Australia, in New Zealand, in London, Toronto, and now on Broadway, logging more than 1,300 performances in the role to date. He has an extensive and varied list of stage credits in Australia dating back to 1966 in productions ranging from Twelfth Night, Much Ado About Nothing, Private Lives, and Long Day's Journey Into Night to Death Trap, I Love My Wife, Into the Woods, Noises Off, and The Producers. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm pleased to meet Tony Sheldon. Hello, Howard. Hello, Tony. Um... 1300 performances, multiple continents, uh, all in the same role. The inevitable starting question is how do you keep it fresh?
1: Well, the audiences keep it fresh for you as do the other cast members. Um, the audiences change every night all over the world. The, the, The ultimate response is the same, which is hysteria and cheering and stamping and screaming. But uh, some nights they're there to have a good time from the first minute. Other nights they'll sit back very judgmentally. Uh, Other times they're completely bamboozled by it. So you have to work at a different level every single performance. Has the show played differently differently? On the different continents, in the different cities, did they respond differently? Not significantly, but the show itself has changed because between the time we did the workshop, which was only 10 days, and then the time that we opened, we had like five months. We, We did the workshop with an opening date deadline. So we never really did the work that we needed to do. We were trying to fix how to make the bus work and how to fly the, the divas in the air. Which and is all very important for your process. It, it, well, exactly. So we, we never really worked on the script. Mm-hmm. And uh, what the past five or six years have involved have been finding the the correct story arc to make the show work the best and so the show has changed in that regard in that the structure of the show changes significantly each time we do it well well tell me about let's leave out the
0: workshop but when this show first opened in australia how different is
1: that from what we're seeing here in the U.S.? Well, the the songs were completely different to start with. Um, There was a a whole storyline about a singer called Kylie Minogue who is not as famous in America as she was in Australia and London Mm -hmm. Um, because in the film it's about ABBA, but of course all that music's since gone to Mamma Mia. uh, So we thought, well, what's the most Australian thing? Kylie. And uh, so, so we had that music, which played a significant part in the show. Uh, And there was a lot more book originally. Um, It's interesting that that a lot of the complaints about the show from critics have been, oh, they really should go away and work on the book. Well, we had a lot more book and the audience got bored with Hmm. hearing our stories. They actually wanted more of the music. So we found that the scenes on a nightly basis were just being cut, cut, cut. And I, I'm i very sad about that because, I mean, it gave us a lot more to play. But the director decreed that the audience was getting restless. Hmm. And so that's
0: been from Australia to London to Toronto to New York. It's
1: really been a winnowing? It, it's – we had scenes that went in for one night in New Zealand. Wow. We, would, we would put in a scene where we sent up um, an inflatable doll as, a, as an SOS kite uh, and then it was attacked by a, a vulture. And, uh, I mean, that lasted one performance. Uh, so we, we, so that poor vulture lost a job. <laughs> and, and the inflatable doll um, <laughs> has had an ignominious life too. We tried everything and uh, this is the most streamlined Uh, incarnation of the show thus far so has the character
0: of Bernadette who of course all the characters began in the film immediately there's a transition to the
1: stage has the character changed over that time I'd have to say that Bernadette has probably changed the least I think it's just that I have a tendency to make stuff work regardless of what it is um, because I'm probably the most experienced person in the cast anyway and I'm a director and I'm a writer and I've written a lot of the material frankly Hmm. um you know when the chips are down and you're in a hurry and you need a joke I would usually come up with one and they all start to accumulate so I've got quite a large chunk (laughs) of material in this show now Mm -hmm. so I suppose just out of expediency I was going, look, I, I'll solve this quickly and I'll rewrite this bit here or, you know, if I have this line, yeah, I can just leave it with me. I'll make it work somehow. So uh, nobody really felt they had to spend much time developing Bernadette. Mm. Uh, the problem was the character of Tick who is basically a cipher. I mean he's the straight guy. He's The story is about him but – he spends the whole show worrying about his son and are we going to get to Alice Springs in one piece, whereas we have Felicia on one side being the loudmouth, quick-witted young Turk and we've got Bernadette, you know, being the queen of the put-down on the other side. So it was fixing that central character who was threatening to become extremely colourless. That's where all the energy has gone. Hmm. Now, I was fascinated to read that Bernadette Is based on a real person who's still around. She is Carlotta her name is. Um, I don't know how much Stefan Elliott, the the creator of the original film, acknowledges this, but Carlotta was the star of a club called Lay Girls, which was certainly a very real place in Sydney. And she was the first public sex change in the 60s. There was a lot of publicity about uh, one of these pretty boys from this drag club had actually had the operation. And uh, so she's a a national celebrity. And um, it's interesting. The first incarnation of the musical that we workshopped was not the film script it was about what had happened to all those people that the film was based on Hmm. and it was a young director wanting to make a musical of the film and he has to chase down the original people to get their approval to make the musical you can now understand why that script didn't last very long but there the i was playing carlotta playing bernadette in the original workshop and my first scene was Carlotta in a nightclub drunk on stage saying and they made that film of Priscilla Queen of the Desert and they should have cast me because it was the story of my life and how dare they cast Terrence Stamp anyway uh, while we were doing this this reading, I said, are you going to cast Carlotta in this role? And they said, no, we don't think she'd be able to do eight shows a week because she's not a theatre person. I said, so you're going to do her story twice and take it away from her again? And they all sort of stopped and looked at each other and went, "You do have a point." So that was when that script got thrown out, and we went back to the Priscilla script. Huh. Yeah, but uh, yes, Carlotta's still around, and she's she's touring a show called the Priscilla Drag Show. Well, that's what's so funny is it's it's sort of come full circle. Now she's capitalizing on Priscilla. Exactly, because she never got any money out of it, and she never got any acknowledgement, so she's taken the title for herself. But you've never met her. There's never been the photo op. Oh, I've met her. Oh oh, I've known her. That's uh, I've known her all my life. Actually, Mm. I come from a show business family, and we used to hang out quite a lot around drag clubs. And uh, um, but uh, and yes, they all turned up opening night on Sydney. There was this phalanx of drag queens all standing around with tears pouring down their face, and all of them saying I know it's meant to be Carlotta but I know you based it on me and so of course I had to say yes to all of them hmm. um, but uh, yes Carlotta was lovely and very supportive but I actually do, I don't base my performance on her she's a very different she's like Raquel Welch she was a hmm. great beauty uh, but she's also rough as guts She's one of, she, she really does talk like that you know darling <laughs> and I thought no 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 I don't want to do that I want to make her a little more elegant so uh, yeah
0: interesting from the time the movie came out to now when we look at the show I'm fascinated that now it is sold as a family musical and I'm not sure that when the film was first done it might have been thought of that way do you do you think that time has changed people's perception of this story or no, no. We, we,
1: we made a deliberate decision to tone it down. Um, I was so embarrassed by some of the material in the workshop that I I asked them to, to remove the child from the rehearsal room, hmm. uh, the, the, the little boy who was playing Benji. Uh, I said, you can't have a kid in the room while we're saying these things. It, it was – the film is very – rough in terms of, of language. And I was very offended by the film when I saw it. I didn't like it at all. Um, so we we had to look at the long term of the future of this show. So everywhere we've brought it, it's had the rough edges polished off it. But that hasn't always been our decision. I mean, I think that's what makes the show unique is that it's got that really Australian rat bag sensibility and that it's, it's the same way... About the look of it, I mean, it's very elaborate, but it's also—it's not glamorous. It's—it looks as though it's pieced together with a glue gun and a stapler, which is what the film was. Hmm. And um, but it's interesting that in each country we played, the the local producers have have been frightened of the content. So when we went to England, we there was a lot of pressure to take out the swearing. And we fought it and fought it and fought it. There was also a lot of pressure to take out all the Australian references. And at one point, you know, we had the Queen walking through the show. And I said to our director I think on the night of the first preview there is nothing to make this show unique we could be anything from anywhere and I said and I think we've made a grave mistake so we bit the bullet and we put everything back in and then when we came to America the same pressure, interestingly a lot of it came from Beth Midler to uh, to take out the, the bad language one of your producers, yes, yes hmm. to take out the bad language um, of but, all people, of all people <laughs> yes, but I think, I mean it's interesting that somebody who's made their career on vulgarity um but again she was looking at the long-term thing and and we we want this show to appeal to middle america but again i <laughs> waved the flag and said you know we, we just don't want to become this bland show that the swearing has a lot to do with what the the character of the show is Fascinating. Well, you've already mentioned it. You
0: you come from a showbiz family. You were on stage uh,
1: as one of Fagin's boys in the production of Oliver at age seven. Uh, no, I started in television at the age of seven. Oh, okay. I, um, because by then my parents had moved on to being the creators of The Tonight Show, like The Johnny Carson Show out there. Uh-huh. My father went from being a dancer. He was um, the first steam heat dancer in Australia, which made him the first Fosse dancer basically in Australia hmm. um, in in the 50s. He moved on to becoming a television producer. And my mother, who was a leading lady in musical theatre in Australia, became the The sort of the Rosemary Clooney of Australian television five nights a week hmm. and uh, so they for, when I was legally old enough to perform on my seventh birthday, I w- was allowed to perform a song that 's the limit uh, in Australia you have to be old. seven you 've got to okay. be seven that 's child welfare uh, rules, and the response was so great because there was no kids on primetime TV that I was offered a contract, and I stayed there for two years as a regular. And uh, so that was my grounding. Did I, you start as little Tony Sheldon? No, Butch. Butch was my nickname. Butch Sheldon. I, how Times have changed. Uh, yeah, Butch Butch was my nickname from the time I was a baby. And so I was known as, as Butch Sheldon. And uh, I did comedy sketches. I sang. I danced. I worked with the, the guest stars who were on that week. And uh, that was sort of my grounding. And by the time Oliver rolled around, I was uh, 10. Okay. And uh, I was one of the one of Fagin's kids in that, and I did that on and off for two years until I was twelve, and then I was retired until my schooling was finished. Well,
0: obviously, your parents had no problem with you being in the business; they put you into the
1: business. Well, they they were showbiz children themselves. Uh, my grandparents yeah. were stars in vaudeville, huh. and uh, my grandmother introduced secondhand rose in Australia. And both my grandparents on both sides were comics. And my aunt, Helen Reddy, um, of course, is a Grammy Award-winning singer and songwriter. So um, it it was the family business. It was just something you did. Hmm. And uh, my parents wanted me to have a solid schooling because they would have preferred that I chose something else. But it was the only topic of conversation in in our house. I mean you couldn't escape it. So, yeah. Well, there was something interesting I read in an interview
0: with you where you said that um, it wasn't that you – Necessarily, just had celebrities in the house all the time, but your family was all part of the business.
1: Yeah, it, it was everything. I mean, the only music that was played were Broadway cast albums, and and my father was selecting material for people. 24 hours a day for the people to be on the TV show. And my mother was always learning songs and learning sketches. And so it was all I ever heard. And it I used to hate going to school and leaving the house because it was so mundane. And I couldn't talk to kids my own age. I could only really relate to show business. But the interesting thing was that I was never as talented in any of those fields as the people around me. Um, I couldn't sing like Helen and and Mum. Uh, I certainly couldn't dance like my father because I didn't have the lessons. My dad didn't want me to have dance lessons. Hmm. So I was never allowed to go. Um, So by the time I turned 17, I had to – and and think, all right, am I going to make a living in this business? What had happened was that while I was at boarding school, I discovered school plays and I was doing Pinter and Stoppard and um, J.B. Priestley, and, and, and I discovered I had a talent for classical acting.
0: So the family business was really musical, yeah, dance, singing, yeah. and so you only went so far to be a renegade as to do plays. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that, exactly. That was I was breaking did, with the tradition. It was, yes. I mean, how how rebellious could I be? So when you finished secondary school. Did you go to college for no, a degree? No, I didn't. I left
1: school early. Uh, my my father had committed suicide when I was 11. My mother had developed a drug addiction to um, a prescription drug, which in Australia was called pethidine. Uh, it was to treat migraines, but hmm. it was basically her way of turning off, really. Uh, she was still sort of functioning as um, a performer. She started to there were a few close calls where she was starting to dry on camera and, you know, there were, there were problems. Anyway, she ended up um, having to go into rehab and when I was 17 and I just thought I can't stand this another minute. Um, I was living with her and I'd, I left school uh, before I finished And Hmm. I thought, I've just got to get out there and start making a living. Hmm. And uh, so I just started auditioning around. And uh, it was in the theatre companies that I found my first work doing uh, Australian plays. Uh, I was very lucky in that first year. I did five plays back-to-back in that first year. And then I drifted into Shakespeare. And uh, then it was on for young and old. Well,
0: you say drifted into Shakespeare. I mean, with no training other than – what you'd been
1: doing, it was, just came to you naturally. I was very lucky. I, I, was, I was an interesting type, I think, at the time. Um, most young Australian actors were of the, uh, the Brian Brown, Hugh Jackman ilk at the time. They, they were young, they were, you know, the, the bronzed Aussie kids, you know. And I sort of came in as this rather sensitive, sort of more English style Kid, and um, so I was getting cast in Simon Gray plays and and things like that, and uh, I uh, I attracted attention hmm. from directors who went, this kid's different. Let's see what he can do. And I was taken up by a director called John Bell, who now runs a company called Bell Shakespeare. He is hmm. he is the the top Shakespearean performer in Australia, and he cast me in Twelfth Night and Much Ado back to back and he, there were a few of us who'd never done Shakespeare and he got us in by working on the sonnets with us because they're very easy to understand and it takes away the terror of the language once you understand it you you think oh well I can I can do anything <laughs> And so we spent a week just working on the sonnets. Well, what you were saying about sort of the type, the, the year
0: before you did The Twelfth Night in Much Do, which was the Nimrod Theater, you were at the Hunter Valley Company. You played Tom in Glass Menagerie. You played Alan in Equus. Yeah. Certainly – that sort of suggests the type you were being cast at yeah. as certainly there in that company. You, at the Hunter Valley Theatre
1: Company, you seem to have done a ton of work in a very short space of time. Yeah, well, that was um, one of the only rep companies that was was playing. So we did seven shows in a year. We, we were literally playing at night and rehearsing during the day, which was invaluable experience. And that was run by a director who had seen my work at, when I was at school. He'd seen me do Harold Pinter's The Birthday Party. And he cast me on the strength of that. And uh, it was interesting because he offered me Equus, which I wanted to do. But I was terrified of the nudity. But I thought, I can't pass up all these other roles like, to, like Glass Menagerie. Hmm. And uh, so uh, I'm very glad I did it. It was an invaluable experience. We've already touched on your, your
0: shifting into Shakespeare. But I have to ask, at Hunter Valley, you were in a show called Hamlet on Ice.
1: Yeah, it was an Australian. <laughs> I have musical. to know what that was. <laughs> it was an Australian musical that treated Hamlet as a Christmas pantomime, and uh, Hamlet was played by a woman, and Gertrude was played by a man, and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern were a comedy team, and uh, it was it was very very clever. And at one point, it was the most produced Australian musical. It was every company in Australia did it, and then would revive it. It was a huge crowd pleaser, and it was hilariously funny. It was truly brilliant. <laughs> And maybe something somebody over here needs to take a look at Uh, 35 years later. Could well be.
0: But you you can't get a list of shows that says Hamlet on Ice and not ask about it. Um, Exactly. It it may be common knowledge in Australia but not here. (laughs) Um, I mean it's really – remarkable you know as i look at the characters that you played when in 79 when death trap was still very new you know you were playing clifford maybe that was the premiere or or fairly you know one of, one of the earlier productions let's assume for the moment that i'm completely ignorant of australia mm-hmm. and it's not a stretch where are you doing all of this work? Is this all in Sydney? Are these in different
1: towns? They're in different towns. Yeah. Um, there, there's basically there's the Sydney Theatre Company, the Melbourne Theatre Company, the Queensland Theatre Company, the South Australian Theatre Company, the Western Australian Theatre Company, and they are terrific company. I mean, like Kate Blanchett runs the Sydney Theatre Company now. Now, sure. Yeah. Um, and they they program an entire year and they bring in guests uh, to to appear in each show um so that was where what i was doing i was traveling around uh but dracula for instance that was a commercial production that was the frank langella production so when when they do a commercial production in australia they tend to buy it holus bolus from america or england they they buy the whole show, the, the mm-hmm. set, the costumes, usually the director, uh, and but they cast it with Australian people. So that has been our tradition. I'll, I'll just give you a bit of history. Back in the beginning of the century, they used to import entire companies from Broadway and the West End. They'd come out on a ship and uh, they... would They'd be like the replacement cast Mm -hmm. or something. They'd come out on the ship. They'd play three weeks in Sydney. Then the ship would go around to Melbourne. They'd do a few weeks and then it would go all around the country. And usually after about six months they'd have done a complete circuit of the country and then they'd they'd go home. And then gradually, just around – before the war, it it sort of became a sort of a summer stocky thing of of we'd we'd get the shows and it would be billed as direct from New York but it would in fact be they would have done the show at Paper Mill or something, Mm -hmm. But they were being sold to Australians as Broadway stars. Then the war came and these people weren't allowed to travel out to Australia. It was too dangerous. So suddenly the people who'd been in the chorus of all these shows or playing small roles got elevated to stardom and uh, suddenly Australians realised Australian audiences and producers realised that hey these people aren't half bad we actually have got the talent out here but do you know it wasn't until Pajama Game in 1957 that we had the first all Australian cast in a show, it was that late and my mother was the leading lady and my dad was dancing steam heat Um, and then we went back to the stars being imported in the 60s. We had Sid Charisse in No, 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 no Net and, and um, Patti Lapone came out and did a veto. Uh, we had good people. But it's it's taken a very, very long time for Australians to be elevated to, to lead roles in well, commercial shows. Coming back then to the theatre companies... In
0: America, the rise of the resident local theatre company was really – began in the early to mid-60s. Was that the same in Australia that other than these commercial tours,
1: this is when these theatres began to grow? Yeah, it started in Melbourne uh, with the Melbourne that was called the Union Theatre and uh, the original troupe included Zoe Caldwell. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the company that sent over Summer of the 17th Doll to Broadway with the the first all-Australian cast mm-hmm. in, in the 50s. And so and it, then it was made into a movie with Ernest Borgnine and Angela Lansbury and John Mills and Anne Baxter. And that was the first time Australian theatre became part of the world scene. And that was as a result of this company in Melbourne. So that was the late 50s. Um, and there was a company called The Old Tote in Sydney during the, the 60s. And then, yeah, so so over a period between the late 50s to say 1970 was when all those companies became established and became the mainstay of Australian theatre
0: but when you were working in these companies admittedly going back and forth between commercial and and company theatre um it was still fairly new
1: it It was was still fairly new and I was very lucky because I arrived just as Australian playwriting was coming to the fore Mm -hmm. so they'd they'd all been doing you know traditional regional theatre fair up to that point but but suddenly there was an Australian voice was starting to be heard, uh, David Williamson, um, a man called Peter Kanaar, who I became his um, – I used to play him. He wrote this series of autobiographical plays, hmm. the first one called A Hard God. Uh, then he ended up writing a trilogy uh, in 1978 in which I played the same character aging from the age of 16 to 36. And then after Peter died, Nick Enright wrote a play about Peter Kinnar, in which I played the lead in uh-huh. two productions of it, ten years apart. So it, it became fascinating that I actually, in five different productions, played this Australian playwright called Peter Canar. And <laughs> at the same time, I was doing Glass Menagerie and Long Day's Journey. So I thought, golly, I'm not only playing Peter Canara. I'm playing Eugene O'Neill and and Tennessee Williams and I, I, was, I was the playwright surrogate there for a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I'm
0: looking at these credits from the 70s, the 70s was also the period when Australian filmmaking began to blossom. And certainly by the late 70s, we started seeing Gallipoli, Breaker Morant, um, probably not until the early 80s that we saw the Mad Max films. Um, were the two industries separate? Be- yeah, Because certainly as somebody who was doing major roles in the theatre community, we didn't see – you didn't develop
1: into somebody who was working in the film industry. No, there, there was very little crossover. Um, directors were very leery of uh, theatre people at the time. Hmm. So the people who were film stars at the time tended to be created either straight out of drama school like Mel Gibson and Judy Davis – uh, or they literally were, they came out of nowhere. Um, the people like Brian Brown had been struggling in England and he hated the, the scene, the theatre scene in Australia. He thought it was pretentious and, and too arty. And so, th- as I said, there was that, that rough-as-guts Australian character that couldn't find a place for itself in, a, in Australian theatre um, a lot of the time that went straight into into cinema. I, uh, I auditioned for my brilliant career with Judy Davis and she absolutely terrified me at the, the screen test. She was staring me down through the whole test and I, I, I was a shaking wreck. Um, uh, i I simply could not adapt to the camera, so I thought no i'm I'm actually very happy doing what I'm huh. doing. I think I'll just bypass all that. thank you there are as you
0: mentioned Australian plays and i have a, there are some plays listed here that I have that I know nothing of. I don't know if you know which were significant, which were they got done once, but what strikes me as fascinating is in some of the interviews I read with you, you said that a watershed moment for you was
1: Torch Song Trilogy. That was because it was a, it was a commercial production. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had pretty much been beavering away at, in the regional theatres and doing very well mm-hmm. for myself. I was very happy. I was always in work and I was winning awards and I had a reputation, a quiet mm-hmm. reputation. And a friend of mine saw Torch Song off-Broadway and – or it must have been on because – Well, it was off originally, yeah, so there was yeah. the opportunity. And uh, brought the published script back, which was that very, very long version, the three-one-act version right. rather, before it all got – The compressed. actual trilogy. yeah. 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 And I read it and I thought, I, I could do this. I, I suddenly thought I have to go for this role. And uh, so I worked and worked and worked on it and uh, I got it. It was interesting that Peter Pope, the, the Broadway director, came out. And he, he, I think he had it in his head that people had to sound like Harvey. Yes. <laughs> there are not <it>, many. <laughs> well, there aren't. And um, he said, I'm worried that your voice is, is too good he uh, He said, "Can you listen to a lot of american television i don 't know he he didn 't ask me to roughen my voice up because I did it in my own voice, mm-hmm. but I know he was concerned that my voice was too well produced hmm. um, at the time and uh but yeah, it was a big commercial production, and we opened in Sydney, and we didn't do well. There was a lot of people who were threatening to pick at it um, family." groups and all of that, you know, Mm -hmm. this, this disgusting play about homosexuals. And sadly they, they didn't. So we didn't get the publicity that would have been attended (laughs) with that. Um, We got very good reviews, uh, but we didn't sort of knock it out of the ballpark. And the producer said, we're going to close it in Sydney. Um, And the publicists, a guy called John Frost and his partner said, we'll buy it. We'll take the rights off your hands. And they did and they scaled it down and they took us to Melbourne and we broke records. We, they put us in a small theatre and we ran well over a year. We became the longest running play in 25 years or something. Hmm. And then they brought us back to Sydney um, in triumph and uh, it made me a, a star. In huh. australia and uh, i they asked me to sign on, but i I got so thin and tired because I never missed a performance, and uh, I just had to to move on so they they closed the show when I left, which was a, a pity, huh, yeah, remarkable.
0: I actually want to jump ahead because there 's a very interesting quote from you now this is from two thousand and four. In which you said, I thought I'd sort of done the man in the dress. I did that 20 years ago. The irony being you were not talking about Priscilla. You were talking about when you were approached to play the role of Roger Debris in The Producers. Yeah. So first of all, let's hear the story about why you decided to do you know, a role that involved drag again when you were resistant to it.
1: It sort of was out of my hands. I wanted to play Max hmm. And uh, in fact, I was determined to play Max Bialystok. And they said, the producers of the producers, the Australian producers said, um, we're videotaping people to send to Mel Brooks. And they had a little wish list of three people, three or four people that they were going to film and a few Leo Blooms as well. And I said, you have to let me audition for this, you simply have to let me audition for this, this is not fair well I was the first one And they came in so half-hearted about it. There was no preparation. There was nobody to read opposite me. Hmm. Um, So I had to pretty much direct my own audition. And I think I was seen at a disadvantage because I'm told that later they they took what I did as the template and they built a set for people and they costumed them. And, Hmm. you know, they brought in other actors to read with them and, and they were fabulously showcased. Whereas I was not. And I know it was because they wanted me to play Roger from the beginning. They wanted to submit me as Roger. And I said, I don't want to play that role. I don't like that role. Uh, it just didn't appeal to me. I felt felt it was very one note. And uh, I thought, no, I uh, I know I can do that. There was no challenge. Hmm. So I was told, no, you're not going to be playing Max. We've cast Max. Uh, we want you to come in for Roger. And I said, no. And then they came back and they said, we, we beg you to come in for Roger. We can't find anybody else who can do everything that you do. No, I said. And then they came the third time and they said, will you just, please just walk into the building and read for these people? They said, you know, that's all we're asking. You're being ridiculous about it. And I spoke to my partner and he said, look, you know, three times he said, I think You've got to at least just do them the courtesy. He said, this is ridiculous. You're turning down work. So I went in and I read and, yeah, I did three callbacks and I got the gig. So I thought, well, I might as well do it. How would you feel about it once you got it? I hated it. I didn't like the show at all. Look, I I went in there absolutely uh, wanting to enjoy it and I thought, okay, I'll do this. But they brought out – an American production team who – and I believe this was a problem everywhere they did the show – who just wanted you to be locked into the performances that were done on Broadway. And, of course, it caused the most terrible stress for us all because, you know, they cast us on our own merits and I made them laugh hugely at my audition by doing my own shtick and then they gradually pared all that away and said, no, we want you to be Gary Beach, hmm. to the extent of dyeing my hair black and and uh, literally just pasting a performance onto me that I didn't want to do. Hmm. And at one point, I think it was about five weeks into rehearsal, they said, now can you and the actor playing Carmen Gear just come up with a little bit of business here? And I said, no, I can't. You're going to have to tell me what you want me to do. I have lost the ability to think for myself. You have knocked it out of me. Because that was what they did. They didn't want us to think for ourselves. Mm. They wanted us to copy what was done on Broadway. And Mel Brooks came out. Uh, for the previews and saw what had happened to the two leads. And he actually said, what have you done to my stars? And he sat in the dressing room with them for three hours and said, we cast you because you are the Australian Nathan Lane and the Australian Matthew Broderick. But they were so brainwashed. They couldn't turn back, Mm -hmm. you know, at the last minute. So they were stuck in, we were all stuck in performances. We didn't want to give. Uh, it, it was all lovely and, you know, we won the appropriate awards and all that. And then we, the show didn't do very well in hmm. Australia because they didn't get it. They, it was too Jewish. It was too Broadway. I mean, those Boris Tomaszewski is in the first line, you know, the, you're doing jokes about theatre in the round to an Australian audience who basically didn't know what theatre in the round was, you hmm. know. So,
0: actually, most people in America don't either. But well, that's yeah, another story. Yeah, it <laughs> just it,
1: there was no concession made to the fact that maybe this was a, a different audience. That hmm. you know, and it was interesting that we we had a layoff after Melbourne. And I was despondent. I was absolutely – I've never been so unhappy. I used to go home every night and just think, how can I make this my own? But, of course, you can't without subverting the material. You've got to play it one way. It's so cartoon. So you'd have probably
0: had the same problem had you managed to get cast as Max. I probably would have. Was there a take – I'm just curious, not not to dwell on, on a production that you didn't enjoy being in, but um, – did you have a take on Max that you think might have worked within the stricture of the script? Um, uh, Had you been given the freedom to do
1: it? I, I was never allowed to develop it, so mm-hmm. I don't don't know. Don't know. Okay. Um, I mean, we were all being ruled by what we'd seen in the film, and that material was what we thought we could take and and make it around. I knew I could play that style. I knew I could do – being an old vaudevillian, Hmm. I knew that was what was required. It's funny
0: because sitting here and only meeting you for the first time and having seen you in Priscilla, I don't sit here and say, gee, I think of him and Zero Mostel for the same roles. I know. I know.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) But, you know, I'm a character actor. Right. And uh, so – it, what was interesting was uh, I was about to say we, we had a layoff after Melbourne and uh, for five weeks and I went off and did another show. I went off and did a play by Stephen Sewell in which I played um, uh, an American uh, head of a college who was a womanizer and uh, it, he was a villain. And I suddenly said to myself, you can act. You're not an idiot. I'd, I'd lost confidence in my own ability mm. as a result of doing producers. So I went back into producers with renewed vigour and the first thing they said to us was, the Americans aren't coming back. So we, went, we all went, yay! We went back into rehearsal for two weeks with just us and we found our own way back into that material with our own sensibility Well, suddenly the material came to life because we weren't hmm. being puppets. We, were, we had our own take on it and the entire show just blossomed and so for the, for the Brisbane and the Sydney seasons it was a much much better show and we actually did well a lot better because it was livelier and it was funnier and it was the same show and we were doing the same jokes we just weren't trapped like robots in doing somebody else's performances
0: Well I jumped ahead bringing up this this issue of, of the woman playing playing a man in a dress again it seems like that quote sort of a misnomer, it wasn't the man in the dress issue, it was that you wanted another part Yeah. so so when Priscilla came along, it wasn't like you were thinking, oh god another drag performance
1: well, I mean, it's so You, I'm sure the same thing here it's so easy to get pigeonholed, people have right. very short memories, and I'd played a lot of gay, well not a lot but I'd played three or four gay roles in my early 20s And I remember one of our premier theatre critics um, from the newspaper, The Australian, a wonderful woman called Kathleen Brisbane, um, Catherine Brisbane, came to me and after one of those performances and said, yes, very nice again, dear. You really must stop playing these roles. And I took that on board and thought, yeah, she's absolutely right. I've got to move on. And so I didn't play any gay roles until Torch Song. And then, of course, that put me on the map again as being the, the the guy who does the gay roles. So when when Roger came around, I'd I'd managed to get away from all of that, you know, and I I was loath to fall back into the the pigeonhole. And of course, because I scored such a big success as Roger, and people were saying, "Of course, the role you were born to play," and I thought, "Oh, yeah, all right, okay, <laughs> here we go. I'm trapped again." Mm. So when Priscilla was mooted yes I, I, it was the last thing I wanted to do. I really had no interest whatsoever, and particularly as i hadn 't liked the film except interestingly enough, Bernadette is not a gay role well no she 's not, and that was that was the turning point because I thought. I'll do the workshop because I want to work with Simon Phillips. I'd never worked with Simon and he was running the MTC at the time, the Melbourne Theatre Company. And uh, I knew it was a 10-day workshop. And I thought, well, I'm also – I can use my dramaturgical skills and my directing skills to sort of help out. And it was the fact that it was a woman. So I thought, oh, okay, this, is, this isn't a drag part. This is something entirely different. So it was whether I could get into that brain space and pull it off and the interesting thing was and i was i was loving the entire process because i was rewriting the show on a daily basis simon didn't have the time to do all the script changes that were needed and i was going home and and reworking the piece and then coming in the next day with script pages and saying what if we do this here what if we move that scene to there what if we use this song what if we cut that scene and use this bit of macarthur park as, as the monologue what if we do? and he was going yeah 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 he was saying yes to everything so my creative juices were flowing I was loving the entire process and I fell in love with the project. And when we did the presentation, it wasn't in costume. I had a full beard and I was wearing shorts. It was midsummer and sneakers. And I saw all the people who were watching. We had all these big producers were in looking at it and all the creative people were there. And they bought what I was doing. Hmm. And I thought if they can buy me looking like this, then, you know, what will I be like in – lovely frocks. Huh. Fascinating.
0: Now, you have mentioned several times writing and directing. It seems that you've done, at least as I understand it, smaller musical shows for individuals that you've created shows. Are these cabaret pieces? Are they full theater pieces? No, Tell cab- me about They're cabaret work.
1: pieces, mostly. But I didn't Ever write a musical? I wrote a couple of plays that were done at drama schools. Yeah, well, yeah, most And I also wrote for television for for many years. I wrote soap operas, hmm. so I learnt that skill. I was a storyliner on uh, soap operas for television, as well as as writing scripts. So that that was a, a skill that I developed. But uh, yes, I I wrote for all the premier music theatre performers in Australia and hmm. put together their club acts, selected their material, wrote all their pattern, directed the shows, lit them, did the whole thing and never did one for myself because I didn't know how to present myself. And I also had that inferiority thing of, oh, I'm not as good as everybody else. So, uh, yeah, but it, it, uh, I was the go-to guy for a very long time of, of putting together uh, club acts.
0: Well, yeah. two questions. You couldn't put together your own show and sometimes you always need perspective. Do you want to do your own show? Is there someone you would approach to
1: say, you look at me and see what you can bring out? Well, I don't know if there was anybody out there who I would trust to do that because there wasn't really – There was only about two or three of us who were doing it. Hmm. And uh, so I knew the sort of material they were putting together and I didn't really think it suited me. I've only done it once. I was asked to do a a short act for about 20 minutes at a late night slot. So I put together a 20-minute show for myself and it went very well. Mm -hmm. I really – I enjoyed it. And that gave me the confidence to think, all right, I could do that. And I'm now wondering how to follow this, this show, because that's going to be a tough call going back to Australia after five years of Priscilla. How does one find one's way back into the industry? Hmm. And I thought, "Mm, well, David Campbell's now running the Adelaide Cabaret Festival and they're bringing out all these people from America, and I noticed they were bringing up Brian Bat, hmm. And I thought, well, if they're bringing out Brian Bat, then I can surely put together an act for myself and, uh, <laughs> and get it on in Adelaide. So, um, uh, yeah, I think that might be something that I have to look at.
0: With all the cabaret shows, as you say, you were the go-to guy, but not everybody is the go-to guy for their mother.
1: <laughs> um, That's true. Tell me about creating a show... For your mom. Well, it was interesting. I've I've always written material for mum since I was a kid. Uh, since she was um, doing her club act, I remember when I was twelve, I used to submit jokes, and she was doing. What she said she always used to say, "I can't tell people my comedy writer is is twelve years old." Um, right. And you probably worked cheap. That's exactly (laughs) it. I worked for food, for food and clothing. But, uh, yeah, yeah, she was always pretty independent. She came and lived in America for 20 years. Uh, Once she recovered from her drug addiction, the first thing she did was gypsy. And uh, she thought, okay, I've pretty much come full circle in Australia. But there's not really anywhere to go after doing Gypsy in Australia. Uh, I'm going to move to Hollywood. So she came to America for 20 years and, and worked at the clubs over here, put, doing very well, putting her own stuff together. But when she came back, she was looking for new ideas. So I structured a couple of shows for her. Then she started to have problems with arthritis. And she was on the phone bemoaning, oh, my career is over. I, I can't walk as freely as I, I used to. And I said, well, why don't I write you a show where you sit down all night? And I wrote her one of those shows. We had all the film clips from those Tonight Show days. We had so much footage. So I said, I'll write you a show where you sit in a lovely big armchair with a screen behind you. And um, you're telling the scrapbook of your life. And then whenever you want to sing, you get up out of the chair and you – You move and you sing. But it meant she could rest between numbers. She Hmm. wasn't on her feet for two hours all night. So that was the, the, the times of my life was the last show that I wrote for her. And she toured that for a couple of years. And she's still around and still performing? She's still around. She's 70. She's just turned 79. She is having real problems now with the arthritis. But she announced her retirement to me over the phone three weeks ago. And she went, I don't know what I'll do. I'll probably go into public relations or something. And then two days later, she was offered a play for next year, an Australian play um, called Biddies, about a a whole group of old ladies um, in a retirement home. And she said, yes. Immediately. Hmm. So she her retirement lasted three days. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, she wouldn't be the first person to do that. Exactly. So.
0: Going back, as I said, not knowing the Australian pieces that you appeared in, could you perhaps pick a couple that you're particularly proud of – both because of your work and because they're plays that you felt were important plays that are probably not familiar to Americans or even
1: necessarily Europeans. There's one play that I would very much like to see have another life. It was called Inner Voices. It was one of the first plays by a very prolific playwright called Louis Noura. And it's about a hypothetical situation where Catherine the Great of Russia had a son that she had hidden away, Ivan And uh, she had him hidden away because she didn't want anybody to succeed her on the throne. And he was kept in prison. Now, I believe this might be based on a true story, that there was a a hidden prince during that period. Nobody ever spoke to him. So he Mm -hmm. had no knowledge of anything other than his own name. And you played Ivan. I played Ivan. And it's an extraordinary role because he's an, an idiot. And what happens is these two corrupt prison guards discover his existence and they decide to overthrow Catherine and put this puppet emperor on the throne knowing that they can rule Russia through this boy. Uh, But what happens is this boy who can only say his name is that they try and force feed him information to get him to speak so that he can speak to the people and it drives him insane and he becomes a lunatic and he basically becomes Ivan the Terrible and ends up killing everybody and running Russia through terrorism. Mm. So it's an extraordinary role because the boy does I, I nearly turned it down because I flicked through the script and I said, oh, this character has no lines. What I didn't realise is that he's on stage all through it and in the last ten minutes are this extraordinary monologue where he's just hearing these voices. He's talking to all these voices in his head and it's a brilliant, brilliant play. It's been turned into an opera. And uh, it's been done all over Australia But I don't know that it's had a life And of course it's it doesn't date Because it's set in Russia During the reign of Catherine the Great Right, because this is a show you did in 1977 So we're going back already 30, Yeah, yeah 34 and years. it was the first time I worked for uh, No, it wasn't the first time I worked for John Bell But uh, it, it led to all those Shakespeare's As, as a result it, hmm. uh, It's a fabulous play And I'd love to It's a tour de force for the boy so I'd, I'd I'd love to direct it somewhere. Well, I was just going to ask you that. You the, the directing seemed to be a lot of putting together
0: these shows, um, the, the cabaret shows. Have you done much directing? I think mostly
1: like- at drama schools. Um, huh. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a wonderful drama school in Western Australia the Western Australian Academy of uh, Performing Arts. And uh, I did Pal Joey there just before I went into uh, Priscilla and I did Jacques Brel there. Mm -hmm. I directed a production of Follies. for the. It was a concert production? It was a concert production uh, for the Melbourne Festival Mm -hmm. and uh, it was one of the great hits of the festival. And sadly, I mean, it was greatly acclaimed, but uh, I think... then, when you go back into acting, you've 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 got to make a choice: Are you going to commit to the directing or not? And I chose to keep going with my performing career, so mm-hmm. I didn't the I didn't have the impetus to keep going. But I, it's something I'd love to keep investigating.
0: Early on, you said that you found your way after boarding school into the business doing plays, yet you continued and certainly we've been talking about, there are so many musicals. And all of these musical cabaret pieces that you directed, was it that you began to think of yourself differently as a performer and gained a confidence in doing musicals? Because you said you you didn't dance like your father, you didn't sing
1: like your mother. Did you have to get past that to come back to it? It was in the public eye rather than myself. I didn't want to be known as Tony Lamont's son, Helen Reddy's nephew, or my career. And so I had to make the decision to make a name for myself where I would not be compared in any way. And I I did enough drama that, that I got away from it. There was a traumatic moment for me where I was cast in a series when I was – quite young um 1973 or something um i was a regular cast member of this series called the unisexes about a commune of people making jeans young people living together and making jeans unisex jeans and uh, it was the biggest flop of, of all time <laughs> but after i'd been cast in the show and i'd done about 10 episodes my mother was cast in the show as my mother as the character's mother well i was devastated I was absolutely devastated because this seemed to me a retrograde step. And and I was on the phone to her saying, oh, well, you, you know, they're all going to think I got the job because of you. And, and my mother said, look, do you want me to quit? Do you want me to quit the series? I'll quit the series if that's what you want me to do. Well, that brought me up short. I thought I'm taking food out of my mother's mouth. She said she – said, <laughs> Parental guilt exactly. translates no matter where you live. Exactly. And she said, Tony, she said, when I was growing up, I was – Max Reddy and Stella Lamon's little girl. She said, now I'm Helen Reddy's sister. She said, and in 20 years time, I'm going to be Tony Sheldon's mother. She said, it's the way the business works. She said, you're just going to have to come to terms with it. Otherwise, you're going to be very unhappy all your life. She said, just think about it. And she hung up. And, of course, I had to think about it and I had to ring the next day and apologise. And, and it's, I've never, ever forgotten her telling me that because it's true. My mother is, you know, she is Tony Sheldon's mother now in Australia. And she's my biggest publicist. You know, she's the one who's ringing all the radio stations now saying, you know, my son's nominated for a Tony. So, uh, you know, she's, she's so proud. And she taught me a, a lesson that I had to swallow. Hmm. And just I've got to ask – did your Aunt Helen play any role in in your performing career? No. Helen left Australia uh, and made her entire career in America. She became an American citizen.
0: Oh, I didn't realize yeah, she was. Yeah, so yeah. So she was
1: gone by the time I was 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she flew me over uh, to stay with her when I was 15 as a Christmas present to stay in the, the Hollywood Hills just as her first record was breaking. So I got to see her before she became a superstar and, and she was just on the cusp of it. And that, that was wonderful. That was a wonderful time time. And uh, then mum moved over at Helen's urging. And Helen said, come on over, come on over. And I went, no, somebody's got to keep flying the flag in Australia. I was the last one to stay and everybody else had died. And uh, I was getting all the roles I wanted in Australia. I had a fabulous career. And I wasn't ambitious enough Hmm. to come over and and want more. I thought I'm perfectly happy doing what I'm doing.
0: You said that you have to start thinking about what it will be like to reintroduce yourself in Australia after so many years with Priscilla, both there and, and abroad, has there ever been the temptation and now you probably have more leverage to do more work here or in Canada or in London
1: or or is Australia really where you just want to be? No, there is great temptation to uh, to stay here. But of course, the problem is I'm the guy in the dress. Mm -hmm. And can people see past it? Um, So I literally would have to be starting again if I was here. I would have to be auditioning for roles in my age group that people would have no frame of reference for other than they have seen me playing a woman. Now, I don't want to do any more women roles. So uh, it's – it's the question of do I really want to start my entire career from the floor up at the age of 56 or hmm. do I go back to a country where I am still known, hmm. you know. Um, it's it's a question I'm going to have to f- face when Priscilla finishes. I'd love to stay with Priscilla as long as possible in New York so I could uh, check out the scene basically. I don't have an agent over here. I don't, you know, I've... I don't even have a green card as yet. I'm still here just on a work visa for this one show. So we'll see. Time will tell. In going back to Australia,
0: if you had your absolute choice of what you would do next, what would be next in order to reestablish yourself
1: there after a long period with one show? Well, a play rather than a musical Mm -hmm. and um, a really – jolly juicy role for a a guy, um, you know, uh, something just to remind people that I can, can do all that, Hmm. you know, it's, uh, but I don't know what's on offer next year. I've never had a career plan and, uh, I've been handed all those lovely vehicles like private lives and, and I hate Hamlet, uh, just, they've just been handed to me with no warning. So they're the best gigs when somebody else sees something in you that I don't actually see in myself. But as you say, it's the balance of people seeing the same thing all the time and getting people to see something other than what you've done before. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's the directors who – who are the saving grace in that regard. Um, the last time that happened was an English play called Neville's Island. An English director called Richard Cottrell, who works a lot over here, said, I want you to do this role. And he was this thug, this English bully who is doing one of those work bonding things where they send people like on outward bound, you know, a group of four from an office. And they get shipwrecked on an island in the middle of the English winter and it was this hideous hideous angry vicious man uh, who was violent and and uh, when you go yes thank you thank you richard for seeing that that i could play this role when very few other people would would see it and i had the best time and i got great reviews and it was it was a joy to do they're the they're the, the ones that that i most enjoy well, as you say, for
0: some time yet to come here in New York, Priscilla Queen of the Desert, Tony Sheldon, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you, Downstage thank Center. you very much. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard, our researcher is Craig Thompson, our director of web development is Rob Perry, and our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from AmericanTheaterWing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing, and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.